0: Empowering patients, keeping them safe, and putting them at the center of their care is the focus of today's WHI, and it should be the focus at your organization, too. Solutions to patient safety challenges aren't always easy, and that's why IHI is proud to invite you to our patient safety executive development program. Ideal for patient safety officers and professionals in safety oversight roles, this intensive six-and-a-half-day program offers the chance to work with expert faculty to develop or refine detailed, customized strategies and implementation plans for solving patient safety issues and insight into how to advise and coordinate the plans with senior leadership. Patient Safety Exec is in its 16th year, and brings together experienced clinicians and IHI MPSF's faculty who have been guiding organizations in their patient safety improvement efforts around the world. It's a great program with over three thousand alumni worldwide. We'll be holding the program next March at the IHI offices in Boston. For more information, visit our website at ihiorg patient safety exec. We hope you'll join us and walk away with the skills and tools to lead a strong and effective patient safety program. Now, here's WIHI.
1: At one level, it's understandable why some people believe that the U.S. healthcare system is fundamentally flawed. Critics say the moneyed interests of multiple stakeholders have an unrelenting grip on how healthcare is organized and efforts to put patients at the center of the enterprise in combination with caring providers. Well, those don't really stand a chance. Maybe, maybe not, especially when growing numbers of patients, many with chronic conditions, are energized these days and determined to get the care, the tools, and the respect they feel they deserve. There's no simple solution to all that ails health care, but if one of our guests today had to choose whose lead to follow, he'd choose patients again and again. The seeds of a patient revolution for careful and kind care. That's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. As many of you know, we're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we come to you live bi-weekly. And after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and also on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. I got to know the work of Dr. Victor Montori as he emerged with new concepts and new models for shared decision-making using a set of guidelines he named Minimally Disruptive Medicine. A lot has been happening in this space over the past decade or so that brings us to a new juncture and call to action, and Victor is here with two of his colleagues to explain all the moving parts and the thinking that unites them. So we're going to get right to introductions. But first, here's IHI's Rebecca Goldberg, and he's going to remind all the WIHI listeners today about how to make the most of your time with us. Rebecca.
2: Thanks, Madge. I have just a few items to point out to help you all make the most of today's program. So on the right of your screen, you'll see our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know that the great conversation takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to all see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you are logged into the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through your speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend you call in through your phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take the time after the program to fill out the quick survey and let us know how we've done. So back to you, Madge.
1: All right. Thank you, Rebecca. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway point of the show. And we do welcome tweeting during and after the program. And please uh, include at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweet so others can get linked up to this conversation. All right, two introductions. They're all on the phone and I guess everybody's in Minnesota. I don't know if you've had your first big snowstorm yet. There's a few flakes predicted for the Boston area on Saturday morning. Joining us first is Maggie Breslin. Uh, she is the director of the Patient Revolution, an action and advocacy movement for careful and kind patient care. We're going to hear a lot more about that today. Maggie has spent over a decade as a designer and researcher in the healthcare space, including seven years at the Mayo Clinic Center for Innovation. Welcome, Maggie.
3: Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here.
1: Terrific. Carrie Sparling has been living with type 1 diabetes since 1986, diagnosed at the age of 7. She manages her diabetes and lives her life by the mantra, Diabetes doesn't define me, but it helps explain me. Carrie is an internationally recognized diabetes advocate and the creator and author of a very popular Six Until Me, that's a widely read diabetes patient blog. So welcome, Carrie.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: And Victor Montori is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, an endocrinologist, and a health services researcher. He is a recognized expert in evidence-based medicine and shared decision-making and developer of the concept of minimally disruptive medicine, as I mentioned before. He chairs the board of The Patient Revolution and is the author of a new book why We Revolt, A Patient Revolution for Careful and Kind Care. I love all the notions in that <laughs> title of that book. Thank you, Victor. Uh, it's great to have all of you with us.
5: Thank you, match It's great to be back.
1: All right. So uh, let's get underway. I'll start with you, Victor. Um, this is oversimplification, but you've gone from talking about clinicians learning how to better appreciate and be curious about and inquire about the burden of being a patient with a chronic health condition to more get the full picture of someone's life, um, to now, in a sense, wanting clinicians to maybe move over so patients uh, can take the lead in redesigning the system. Feel free to correct that assumption. Uh, but what's going on? What's what's this uh, journey that you've traveled on? Thanks a lot.
5: Um, I- so I think the first assumption that we have to maybe confront is the fact that we um, uh, I am a physician and I work uh, as, as an employee of a healthcare industry that uh, has increasingly become about itself and about these, its own industrial goals. And as I've gone around the country speaking about shared decision making and minimally disruptive care as a way, as ways of improving care, of achieving IHI's own uh, triple aim, uh, quadruple aim, um, I found that uh, the frontline clinicians, um, uh, lacked in, uh, uh, initiative and energy to change things. Um, they were, um, burned out. And as you know, there is, there are statistics now that, uh, put the numbers of people at the front lines that are no longer capable of empathy and uh, find themselves depersonalized at about one in two or one in three frontline clinicians. So this is a disaster. And um, we need to, patients can't wait. And uh, they can't wait for uh, uh, healthcare to um, uh, repair what caused or has caused that problem. And we can't wait on clinicians to to try to change the system from inside because, as I said, they are demotivated and they don't feel uh, that they have the self efficacy to create change. Uh, of course, there are exceptions to this, and there are very enlightened organizations that uh, see the exact same things that I've been seeing and have m- managed to, to create movements within themselves to try to change things. But for the most part, uh most organizations are very focused on their uh, financial bottom lines and able to uh, provide care that satisfy the requirements of payers and then move on that's not sufficient that's not what uh, uh patients expect of the best healthcare system in the world or so we're told and we need to uh we need to turn that around and we need to turn this industrial healthcare into a system of patient care a system that is both careful and kind with each one so it's insufficient now for uh, simply clinicians learn new tricks. We need a new system of care and we need citizens. Um, I'm, I'm referring to patients as perhaps the most, uh, the, the citizens that have the most to uh, lose from the status quo. Uh, but essentially citizens, uh, this could be students of the health professions, um, uh, patients, caregivers to mobilize to try to uh, rescue um, care from this industrial healthcare machine, and to do so, using their creativity, using their energy, using their using their power, and I have no doubt that clinicians, because they're also victims of this system, that clinicians, when they see the potential for change, will join, uh, will join the movement, will join the revolution.
1: Make the uh, connection uh, for me between minimally disruptive medicine. And, we're, uh, and you're thinking now, um, do you feel as though min- minimally disruptive medicine uh, didn't quite get the uh, kind of disjuncture and despair that's going on? Or do you feel in a way the patient revolution idea actually is building on
5: that? Yeah. So, minimally disruptive medicine refers to the practice of medicine that is mindful of the of two uh, fundamental uh, components. One is the capacity that patients and caregivers have to implement the treatment program in the life of patients and the workload that that program entails, and uh, recognizes that uh, patients' capacity is a finite resource that is. Uh, uh, that patients tend to prefer to use um, that finite resource to pursue their life's hopes and dreams rather than to become great patients. And as a result, um, we struggle with uh, the uh, uh, patients participating in care, uh, attending uh, uh, visits, uh, completing forms, taking uh, prescription medicines, and so forth. Uh, the, the problem that sometimes is labeled as non-compliance or non-adherence, and so minimally disruptive medicine was a way of calling attention of clinicians and health systems about the whole per- the whole person, the fact that patients um, uh, have a, not only a biology to respond to, but also a biography to respond to, and that in, in caring for the uh, for the content of their uh, clinical situation, we also have to pay attention to the context. That. That responds to the notion of seeing the patient in high definition in order to understand their problematic situation and respond to it appropriately. Um, that is an element that is retained uh, and is very central to the idea of a patient revolution. And is the idea that we should move from taking care of patients like this to taking care of this patient. And, and that, that opportunity, that, that, um, that way of individualizing care, of seeing each person in their whole universe Uh, both intellectually, emotionally, and practically, is uh, one of the critical elements in providing care that is careful and kind. So the patient revolution builds on the principles of minimally disruptive medicine, but takes it much further.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you very much for laying that out. We'll come back to a lot of those ideas in Carrie and Maggie's comments and also uh, during discussion. All right, Carrie, let me turn to you next. Uh, You're the very sort of person Uh, with a biography and uh, a biology, I suppose, who's changing the facts on the ground and also uh, maybe embodies uh, some of what Victor is talking about in terms of what you want to be doing and are doing with other patients and colleagues. So uh, tell us about that work. Thanks a lot.
4: Sure. Well, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 1986 when I was 7, as you had mentioned. And upon diagnosis, there was this huge network of support in place from the clinicians at the hospital to the endocrinologist I was referred to for care to the advocacy organization that centered its work on families affected by diabetes that supported my parents and I as we adjusted to this new normal. But then there was this long gap of time, and after growing out of my parents' immediate care and into my own adult life, I realized that those support systems and those support options were really limited while I had you know, not been a child anymore. So if you Google diabetes back when I was about 25, it brought you this whole list of search returns that were depressing and distressing and reasons my life would be compromised and my body would fail me. And as a young woman, that was not what I needed to see to motivate me to, as Victor, I hope you used air quotes, to be adherent and compliant. That wasn't inspiring me to take good care of myself. I wanted to find other people who were living with this condition. And that's what prompted me to want to start a blog to share my patient story. And it was one of the first diabetes blogs, but now it's part of this huge ecosystem of patient voices. And that's really important because Patient voices matter because there's way more to managing chronic illness than visiting our clinicians four times a year and discussing lab work results. I mean, my medical team, so they offer up research and accurate medical advice, but it's the community of my peers who are helping me and one another to integrate that medical advice into real lives. And over the last 12 years, as a diabetes advocate and now a member of the Patient Revolution team, I've seen patients reveling in connecting with one another and removing that isolation that diabetes can add to their life and actually working to change the way that our care is delivered and managed. And as a result of peer-to-peer support and community, the people with diabetes are empowered to go to their clinician and demand the best outcomes for their lives. We're we're trying to lead the charge when it comes to truly personalizing our own medicine. Um, kind of the problem, and we mentioned the system as though it's like this hydra with all these heads and it's all coming to get us, but we're part of it. And individually and as a group, we can demand and get better care and better outcomes. And so I I know we had talked earlier about um, the We Are Not Waiting community. So I wanted to kind of give a tech example about what the diabetes community is doing to kind of move things forward when the system isn't moving quick enough for us. So in the type 1 diabetes community, we're all dependent on insulin to stay alive. And many of us use devices called insulin pumps to deliver our required doses with precision and care. And some people with diabetes also use a device called a continuous glucose monitor, and that pulls Glucose values every five minutes from a device and sturdy to the skin. And sorry to get so technological on this one, but
1: that's okay. You can, <laughs> it's good for people to understand. Well, to paint. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's
4: just strange to paint the picture of what I live with with such familiarity and try to explain it to people who may not have ever heard from it. But we take that data that's streaming that glucose data and it goes onto a phone and it lets people see their, di- their blood sugars in real time. And this is amazing all on its own. But the people in the diabetes community have taken this amazing technology one step further by designing their own artificial pancreases, and that they're closing the loop between their glucose monitors and their insulin pumps, resulting in a careful but albeit hacked system that delivers insulin and corrects blood sugars automatically, or as my mom says, automatically. <laughs> so this is exactly the kind of innovation that the patient communities are developing. The hashtag for that sort of stuff in the diabetes community is we are not waiting because we, as a community, don't have five more years to wait for that long-promised cure. We see that change that can happen now, and and we try to make it happen.
1: Mm -hmm. Let me just ask a quick follow up question, if I might, before we turn to Maggie. Um, In terms of the empowerment that you're talking about uh, and the example you're using, uh, smartphone and and, uh, medical information available uh, through an app is very special way of uh, getting information in real time and then delivering what's needed. I'm curious if you were to say, uh, you know, one, one hears a lot about providers and physicians and other clinicians being very uh, keen on uh, technology as well. So I'm wondering um, if, what's the difference between doing that, uh, what you're talking about, and dealing with providers. Were providers not as interested in that uh, or had something else in mind uh, for what you should be doing?
4: In terms of delivering our our own insulin, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of times we'll sit with our clinicians, and they are lovely, wonderful people, but the system that Hydra forces them to sit and look at a list of boxes that they're supposed to check. Did they take our weight? Did they take our blood pressure? Did they take our A1C levels? And because they're forced to work within those parameters, things like what do you actually want and what do you really want to do, not just with your diabetes, but with your actual life, those questions never get answered. There's never a head-on addressing of a patient's desires outside of their diabetes. It's always mentioned as though diabetes is the thing that you build your life around when, in fact, our diabetes is kind of mushed into the corner of what we view as our broader life. It's not the dominant force that drives us. So I feel like clinicians... Sometimes aren't given the bandwidth to ask about what would you want, and I feel like that's a huge missing element. And that's also where we could deliver better care if we're looking at our patients as whole people, not just diseases uh, and lists of checked boxes sorts of things.
1: Okay, all right, that's helpful. Thank you very much, Carrie. Uh, those of you tuning in, <clears throat> we're just minutes away before uh, we're going to open up the chat and feel free to start. Uh, making any comments or questions, so we'll be ready to go with that. Curious if anybody else uh, who's tuned in today either cares for patients uh, with uh, type 1 diabetes or perhaps deals with that as well, and any thoughts you have about what uh, Carrie just said. Maggie, thank you very much for being part of this as well. When we planned the call, you spoke of the need for productive friction in healthcare. And I wonder if you could describe what that is. And also, you're going to walk us through some of the tools that are now available on the website, patientrevolution.org. So you've got some great slides we can take a look at. Thanks, Maggie.
3: Excellent. So as Victor and and Carrie both really um, highlighted, the kind of core idea behind the patient revolution is that careful and kind care is a product of focus on the individual, on the patient, both their biology and their biography, understanding um, their history and their context and what's important to them. And we really believe that the best way for that to happen, perhaps also the most efficient way for that to happen, is by people talking to each other. Um, and so the medium of our road Revolution is stories and conversations, and productive friction is what emerges from sharing those stories, from having those conversations. It's how uh, patients and clinicians can figure out where they agree, where they disagree, and try and identify what the right way forward is for this person at at this moment in time. Um, And so that's really uh, where we've kind of focused the patient revolution idea and. So we said, okay, this is what we want to do is we want to help patients be able to share these stories, to have these conversations. And while we recognize that stories and conversations um, are kind of a simple idea, they're not necessarily easy. Um, There's a lot of forces at play within the system that are actively working against patients being able to share this type of information, clinicians being able to kind of ask this type of information or have these types of conversations. And so a big goal for the patient revolution is for us to figure out how do we help um, provide tools and programs and support and resources uh, to encourage patients to begin to without asking for permission, just start to share some of this information um, and see if it can spark the type of conversation that's actually going to lead to something that is more careful and kind. Um, and that's, that's really the idea. Um, we can, I can walk you through a couple of yeah, the things that we have highlighted on our website. Sure.
1: Yeah. Let's start with the barrier oh. cards. Thank you.
3: Yep. Yeah. So the barrier cards and also are um, uh, uh, very early on when we were um, thinking about this idea of uh, we want people to be um, having different types of conversations. And then we said to ourselves, OK, so why aren't they? Why aren't people having these conversations, clinicians and patients now? And so we did a lot of research and we collected a lot of stories and we identified these eight barriers that we kind of refer to as the kind of cultural and social barriers that keep patients from speaking up, um, a fear of, of looking unintelligent or concerned about the wrong things or just assuming that the doctor's recommendation is the only option or kind of the best option. And one of the ways that we use these tools is um, – uh, this tool and also the tool on the next page, uh, we run workshops, care conversation workshops. And at the beginning of the workshop, we ask people to um, think about a recent clinical visit and to uh, look at the cards and select the ones that um, seem resonant to them. And then they tell us stories about how these barriers actually manifest. Um, and we can begin to understand that it's often uh, we had one woman tell us a story um, about how uh, she worked up the nerve to kind of tell her, she was nervous about telling her physician that she was a vegetarian. Um, And then when she finally did, the doctor was really dismissive of um, kind of of this idea and and how to work it into kind of understanding her and her kind of care plan. And so the barrier cards help us understand how these challenges actually manifest in the world and allow people to hear from others as well. And then in the second, the plan your conversation cards and practice sessions, um, we started with the idea that One of the things that clinicians do in their training is that they um, have simulated patients. So they get to practice having a consultation with a patient and doing the diagnosis process. And so we began to think, like, what would that look like for patients? How could we help patients begin to practice a conversation? And so our first iteration of that is this very lo-fi tool. Um, It has five cards. It asks people to complete the sentences I want to talk about. It's important to me because it might help you to know I want this conversation to lead to, and I'm nervous this conversation will lead to. Um, and in our workshops, people fill these out. And then in partner, those partners, they share their story with each other um, out loud as a way of beginning to hear themselves say it. Um, and we've heard from people that just this kind of simple act of um, having to say it out loud gives them more confidence to then actually bring it up with their clinician um, at the next visit that they have. So, um We've also been, I think the next slide is uh, we also created a reflection document, which is, uh, again, a sort of series of four questions um, that uh, can happen in the doctor's office. It's um, tell us one non-medical thing about your life. Um, tell us one thing that your doctor is asking you to do that you feel like is helping. Uh, what's one thing that your doctor is asking you to do that feels like more of a burden? Uh, and where do you find the most joy in life? Uh, and the idea is that these kind of simple answers to these four questions can help help um, begin to, uh, uh, create a platform for a different type of conversation between a clinician and patient. And so in this instance we had one patient who filled out where do you find the most joy in life uh, and he was with his wife and um, he said uh, sex and his and his wife wrote down love life in the um in, in the box for him. And then we shared that with the clinician and he was the physician he was saying, wow this is like really helpful information for him to know because uh he's like lots of medications have sexual side effects and if I know that this is something that's really important to this patient, I can use that information as I think about what options we might be able to present um, and how to speak about the trade-offs that might be involved in sort of uh, different options for blood pressure medication or, or sort of other kind of pieces. So again, it's trying to create platforms for these different types of dialogues. And then the the last couple of slides, really the... Um, the other thing that we've tried to do is to begin to create spaces where people can come together and potentially start to think through an issue um, and uh, develop their own opinion or kind of thoughts about it before they have to make a decision about it. So this connects up a little bit with the work uh, that we've done around shared decision making over the last um, uh, 10 years or so. Uh, and so we created these events um, for women between 35 and 45 to come together and get some information and to start think think through for themselves um, about whether or not they want to have uh, a mammogram screening beginning in their 40s. Um, and so the they happen oftentimes in people's homes or in libraries. Um, and it's really the idea of creating a social space where, again, there's kind of this practice element. So people share how they're responding to seeing information, um, and uh, they hear from other people as well and can understand that other people may be bringing something different to it or can look at the same information and kind of end up in the another place. Um, so it's empathy building at the community level, uh, and it allows women to get exposure to information and to start to think through what might be important to them um, before they're sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor's uh, asking them or telling them um, that they should get a mammogram, and they now have some information to begin to share with the clinician and advance uh, their own ideas about what may be best for them or what they think the plan should be. So those are a few examples, and, and We have lots more um, that are in the works.
1: (laughs) Patientrevolution.org. And uh, these examples and what you're saying is really resonating uh, with uh, folks on the chat. And um, I want to turn back uh, just a sec to Victor while I'm going to ask Rebecca here to help me make this chat uh, screen a little bit broader for me so I can actually... There she goes. I knew she would know how to do that. So I can see more (laughs) of the comments all at once. Thank you very much. Well, um, I want to ask... uh, Thank you, Maggie. Uh, Those are really great examples. I invite people to look at the website to explore... Uh, more of these. There's another slide that comes next that Rebecca can show. It may be a little small, but you can either download it or enlarge it on your screen. And it's interesting, uh, this, of course, starts to look at, you know, some of the shared decision-making ideas about what are the benefits, what are the risks, what are you really uh, going uh, to need to understand uh, when you make a decision uh, about to do or not to do something related to treatment. Victor, do you want to comment on anything that Carrie or Maggie uh, has said um, I'll give you a one little heads up. Of course, um, it's up to you whether you want to name names, but somebody is wondering if you can provide any examples of organizations that are finding their way to uh, careful and kind care.
5: Um, yeah. So, no, my comment would be just that the um, these are early days in the development of uh, tools and uh, and uh, content really for uh, for folks to um, to uh, create the kinds of conversations that I think can bring about change. What's unusual about what we're at is that we think that uh, we can transform industrial healthcare into patient care through conversations. Um, So uh, for instance, at the level of the clinical encounter, these shared decision-making approaches that we've talked in the past um, uh, are, uh, I think, transformative in bringing the uh, situation of the patient to the forefront and giving the clinician a chance to really uh, understand the patient and see the patient in high definition. Um, but what about the relationship between hospitals and clinics and the uh, cities cities and regions that they serve and the citizens that they, uh, they they serve? To what extent are there is there a dialogue there? And and we all know that hospitals have uh, implemented patient and family councils and other entities of that nature that could potentially play this role, but for the most part serve to really rubber stamp whatever decisions have been made from an operational perspective so as to convince everyone else that this um, – uh, meets the patient, so, uh, once. Um, I think there's an opportunity to improve the quality of those conversations and to start those conversations before decisions are made so that the care can really be shaped according to the, what, what people perceive as their need and they can be co-created, can be co-designed, can be co-constructed. And then, of course, at the national level, it's pretty clear that we do not have a dialogue right now about the content of care. Most of the dialogue is about how to pay for things, uh, which is really um, about whether to pay for health care for some uh, people. Uh, people's Groups um, and uh, these guys, as to how we're going to pay for it, and I think there's an opportunity to actually have national dialogue about a number of things. So we've been talking uh, a little bit in this uh, in this conversation about diabetes. Well, insulin is, I think, an excellent example of how uh, the usual approaches to improvement that the healthcare industry would like to sell us, which is based on competition, for instance, um, not only has um, failed, as in the case of insulin, where we have, um, you know, several manufacturers potentially competing for the, quote, market for insulin, and yet the price of insulin keeps going up and up and up and up and up, which clearly does not benefit the end users, many of whom um, are suffering health effects and uh, and potentially death from the lack of availability of insulin, affordable insulin. And this is a medication that was, uh, this is a hormone that was uh, uncovered and, and made available in 1922, uh, so there's really no reason for this, um, uh, uh, and so th- those are examples where I think a, nas- a dialogue at the national level, regional level, and at the local level, even at the level of the of the patient clinician encounter, uh, could really transform um, what we consider just reasonable behaviors of an industry into unacceptable behaviors of patient care.
1: Okay, thank you very much. All right, let's uh, get into the chat in earnest here and a reminder to everybody to send to all participants. That way we can all see your questions and comments and you are all welcome to answer each other's questions and comments, Uh, sort of start a, a, a conversation as well. As uh, take part in in the one that uh, I'm guiding right now, Carrie. I wanted to um, turn back to you for a minute. Uh, clearly, people heard and hear a very uh, strong-willed, uh, competent, knowledgeable person who's had a lot of experience uh, dealing with uh, your health and the healthcare system and sort of finding your way to a better place, I'm also struck by some of the tools that patientrevolution.org is offering, which reflect a lot of the hesitancy uh, that patients have around bringing things up uh, and sort of taking that big step. And one of the things when we were planning the call, I don't know if it was you or Maggie who said it, was the importance of practicing. And I that's just stuck in my head a lot about what does it look like to practice to to be a more empowered, uh, you know, somebody, some patient who can speak up. Sometimes we think if we just give people the words uh, or say, you have permission to do it, people will do it. But practicing uh, probably starts to give people some of that muscle. And I I wondered if you could speak to that.
4: Sure. Well, I really like the conver- plan your conversation tool because it's it's one thing to sit in your home in the comfort of your family's. Uh, ear sort of thing, and to talk out what you wish you had said to your doctor. I do that all the time when I'm driving home from an endocrinology appointment saying, oh man, I wish I'd said that, or why didn't I bring this up, or how come when they asked me if I exercise, I lied and said I do that nine times a day instead of saying, oh, this is where I struggle. What causes me to want to lie? Like These are easy questions to ask in the comfort of my home, but when I'm sitting in front of my clinician and we're supposed to be having this productive conversation, there are two things that are happening. The first is that I'm seeing my clinician working within the confines of that box of a system where she's forced to look at the computer and her checklist as she facilitates the appointment. And then secondly, I have this burning desire to not disappoint my healthcare provider. I don't want them to think I'm not trying because what comes part and parcel with disease like diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, people like to assume that there is something that you should be doing better. Always questions like, should you be eating that? Should you be doing that? What if you lost a little weight? What if you gained a little weight? All these different peanut gallery sort of commentary. And so when you're sitting there with your clinician, you're wondering, are they judging me? Do they think that I'm not trying hard enough? I don't even want to ask the questions that I'm really thinking. So all of that said, having something that forces you to put those questions to paper and gives you something you can bring in. So even if you are completely paranoid, to say them out loud, you could very awkwardly shove them across the table and say, I have these questions I want to ask. And just doing that a couple of times, like you said, exercises that muscle and makes it so that perhaps the next time you don't need to write them down. Maybe the next time you're willing to speak your mind in the office, there's an empowerment that comes, like you said, with that practice. And I completely agree with that because even though when I'm reporting out, when I sit with my clinician, I'm not always proud of or not always happy about, at least it's getting out there and she's able to reach back to me and work off of my honest feedback so that we can really make strides in my diabetes care instead of me telling her what she wants to hear. And her just checking the boxes makes the conversation more productive. So planning it is huge.
1: Let me uh, just tackle on uh, one other uh, question. Uh, somebody, uh, John Gatchell, a physician, is asking: Does having portal engagement online uh, does that help any of this? uh, or hinder it. He's thinking maybe it helps facilitate. Maybe people can be even more, uh, outspoken, you know, uh, still at home, but, uh, online. And I'm, I'm curious from your own experience or what you've witnessed. What do you think?
4: Well, that's the thing. I mean, if I answer these sorts of questions, I'm, I'm not the Lorax of people with diabetes. I only speak for me as the one person who has it. I can't speak for the entire group, but I know that there is hesitant to want to ask the scary questions. So imagine you're getting a portal. You're not just getting the portal access from your endocrinologist. You're getting it from every single doctor that you have. And if you're living with a chronic illness, that could be a full slate of clinicians that you're seeing. That probably means you have about 15 passwords or 15 different portals. That alone might keep people from signing in. And also, if you have a concerning question, you might be more willing to ask Dr. Google than to go to your clinician first for a multitude of reasons. So I I think the portals are great, but to be honest, I mean, I've had diabetes for 31 years. I think that I've gone back and forth via these approved portals with my endocrinologist only when I was pregnant. That was the only time that
5: I I cared enough to access their system.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Go ahead, Victor.
5: Yep. Yeah, so I, as, I'm, as I'm looking at Dr. Gottschall uh, uh, notes, I mean, why are we talking about a revolution? Why are we not talking about, as we normally would, about innovation and improvement or reform? And the reason is that the basis of the system as is right now is the notion of no money, no mission. But not in the usual uh, sort of nonprofit way where basically you use that mantra to um, uh, fundraise so that you can pursue your mission, your mission being primary, but rather the fact that right now the, the system works in a way that the mission happens where the money is. And uh, as a result, opportunities for Broad, deep innovation, like intensive primary care, for instance, are sometimes incredibly hard to make work when the, when the system is designed with someone else's incentives, when someone else's profit, with someone else's economic success in mind, not the patient's. And so that creates a, that creates a tension. If one looks at the barriers for most of these innovations and improvements, it's usually, it usually is some variation in not enough money, misaligned incentives, not enough time. And what that indicates is that the structure of the healthcare industry does not allow for innovations or improvements that are fundamentally designed around the needs for patients. They will always be these barriers because they're trying to fit something that corresponds to a different philosophy than the philosophy on which the system is built today, which is not to advance the care of patients and be accountable to patients, but rather to create these care products that then we sell to payers that we need to meet the payers requirements for it and the payers are willing to pay up to a certain amount for those, for a certain number of those product um, cases that we deliver. We become providers that deliver care, not clinicians that, that uh, care for patients in a careful and kind way. So that's why we talk about revolution. It's not a hyperbole. It's that it really, we need to move on from the, from trying to make um, uh, the, the the you know the, the trying to make a, a system that has moved on to, to that has corrupted its fundamental mission of care uh try to make that work for our patients uh, with with smaller changes it, and i just don't believe that that's gonna be the case anymore my hope is in transforming the system to a, one about patient care that is no longer a healthcare industry
1: you have uh some people who are really uh applauding uh, the revolutionary aspect of this uh, on the chat, as I'm sure you've seen Victor and Carrie and Maggie. Uh, Somebody from uh, Australia uh, is, you know, on fire about this and is wondering if uh, you see any better examples outside the U.S. of more of what you're imagining. And and she, she, I believe it's a she, is thinking that this uh, kind of thing might really catch on in a big global way. Uh, And somebody is also looking, though, even with the big picture that you're offering, Victor, about what's wrong and what needs to be right, what are good first steps? If you are—yeah, go ahead.
5: So so, uh, very quickly about the international scene. So in in this book that we just uh, uh, put out, uh, Why We Revolt, um, uh, we thought that perhaps it will be helpful— Uh, as as a a vehicle for these ideas in the U.S. Uh, To my surprise, um, in 15 days, I'm expected to see the first draft of the Spanish version. And I I, I speak Spanish. I didn't write in Spanish. Um, So (laughs) people in in Spain have uh, taken it upon themselves to do that. And the version in Italian is also about to come out. Why? Because even though they have universal healthcare systems and they have other approaches there to the one that we have in the United States, the challenge for the patients is essentially there the same as it is here. Um, In in their situation, they have an industrialized, uh, publicly-run system uh, that takes care of people like this, not of this person. And those at the front line are suffering with those challenges. They they are pulled apart by different forces the, than the, than the ones that pull apart pull, pull us apart here. But the challenge of taking care of patients there is very similar to ours. Um, with uh, there's campaigns right now to uh, ensure that there's, for instance, enough time to see patients, uh, particularly in in primary care. Um, models for improvement and models for for uh, for uh, innovation around patient care are everywhere, and IHI has been the leader in, in making those happen despite the challenges that I'm pointing out. So I'm sure that there are a number of places that have wonderful things going on that we should imitate, that we should um, steal and uh, implement here. But again, I think we're going to constantly find ourselves... Um, uh, and increasingly find ourselves, in the United States in particular, um, uh, bumping against a system that no longer cares about the kinds of things that we would have considered in the past as being beneficial to patients. Keep in mind one important uh, recent event. CMS uh, had, a, uh, had a plan to um, conduct a study looking at the, uh, the possibility of uh, reimbursing uh, visits that had shared decision-making in them differently. I think this is a bad idea. I don't believe that people should do the right thing just because they're paid for it. But th- that was the experiment. They shut the experiment down because there were not enough health care organizations coming forward to try to uh, to try to tr- uh, to participate in the experiment of shared decision making. So, so we no longer have time, energy, attention to try out a patient-centered model of care and get paid for it. That's how bad it's gone, and uh, we need to we need to come back from that. Uh, pa- again, patients cannot wait until until things get better. We need to make sure that they get better.
1: Okay, well, I want to uh, draw all very very important points, and uh, well, I invite uh, everyone tuning in. Uh, to, uh, you know, say to what extent this resonates for how you're feeling. I think one of the things that strikes me about the folks who are on the program today is that, by and large, they agree with you and are e- either patients or providers who are feeling the squeeze in every which way that you've uh, discussed it. And at the same time, very excited about these tools, uh, because it at least sort of gets the camel's nose under the tent, uh, and starts to change, uh, dynamics. And with that, I guess I wanted to ask Maggie if you'd speak to, uh, numbers of people on the chat. I don't know if you've been able to scroll up and down, are wondering about these barrier cards, uh, for various, uh, conditions, uh, looking at home care, uh, E.D., uh, other ways, and somebody is wondering why aren't uh, thinking that maybe uh, these kinds of materials could be very visible in some practitioners' offices, and I'm wondering if that's uh, already happening. Thanks, Maggie.
3: Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean it's so exciting to uh be reading or seeing Flash before me. I think I need Rebecca here as well to open up my chat window probably um, but uh, oh, no. it's it's really it's really um thrilling to see this kind of response. Um, As Victor kind of mentioned in in the beginning, you know, we're in the uh, very kind of early days of of patient revolution, um, and we recognize that, you know, our goal here is to try and be the um, worker bees of the, and sort of to make the tools and programs and, um, uh uh resources available and the skill building that can help um, patients and communities and caregivers and clinicians really be able to figure out how they make um, this vision for careful and kind care a reality in their own spaces because we know it's not going to look the same for each person, um, for each practice, or each community, or each country. Um, And so we have really tried to design the tools in many ways to be flexible and adaptable to different situations. And we try not to be prescriptive about exactly how they should be used. So I would say that if you think that the barrier cards are awesome and exciting and interesting and you think that they should be in the clinicians' office um, I encourage you reach out to me there's a downloadable version online and take them into your clinician and talk to them about why you think that it's important for and what value you think these could have um, and we're certainly here to help you uh, do any part of that that you think would would kind of help make that a reality um, so there's not a lot of restrictions on these if you um, we have a digital version or an interactive version of the Plan Your Conversation cards as well as the physical version online Uh, and uh, I think we encourage people to kind of share and, and, and sort of get them to other people. Um, I saw a flash in front of the chat here. Uh, somebody asked if we had the uh, clinician version of the barrier cards, and we do, uh, and they will be uh, uh, published and available on the website soon, um, but also recognizing that there's, you know, barriers to why clinicians don't have these types of conversations and why they sometimes don't... Um, solicit stories or engage in these types of conversations. And so uh, we're trying to kind of recognize that that piece as well. Um, if you have ideas about for uh, condition-specific uh, conversations, hard conversations that you could imagine uh, a tool would be really helpful to support, please reach out to us, especially if you uh, are part of a, a group that would like to collaborate on creating that and then spreading it. Um, you know, a lot of it all comes down to this idea. There's so some kind of somebody remarked with our plan your conversation cards that you know we've made them for a healthcare conversation, but they could be appropriate for any difficult conversation you might need to have with a um, a friend or a spouse or a child. You know that there's certain kind of consistent elements that um, are helpful in sort of talking through something that may be worrying you or overwhelming you in some way. Um, and so you know we're here and open to um, to, to be co-collaborators uh, with anyone or any groups and any communities that are interested. And some of our ongoing work is um, we try and capture a lot of it on our website, but a lot of it is happening out in communities. So when we're hosting workshops um, or uh, doing research um, out in communities in order to kind of um, help those groups figure out how to uh, engage their clinical systems or their clinicians uh, in these types of conversations and and what that looks like. And as we discover what those tools are, then we try and make them available for free on our website and encourage other people to kind of help and use them.
1: Thanks, Maggie. And we put the slide back up uh, as a cover of the book as well as all of your Uh, Twitter handles and uh, email addresses, Uh, you're all going to have the chat (laughs) at the end of uh, today's program. Uh, And be reminded of the conversation uh, and what each uh, is contributing. And then if you want to be in touch with Maggie and Carrie and Victor and share some ideas. And it seems as though uh, lots of people have ideas. There's a a really nice comment here also about uh, developing things that would be uh, for the uh, mental health uh, community uh, as well. Um, Carrie, let me bring you back in right now. Uh, if uh, as you're listening to kind of what where people are uh, with this, uh, what are some of the kind of next uh, frontiers would you say uh, for patients with diabetes? Uh, um, one, and, and, and how are you seeing uh, kind of the reactions? One person here is wondering whether you are all tending to get pretty positive feedback or are you getting a lot of uh, questions? Uh, are, are people having some second, you know, kind of wondering skeptically what, what you're up to?
4: <laughs> In terms of... Uh- Kind of renegotiating our diabetes devices,
1: yeah, and just uh, in general, in some way, I, I would imagine uh, that there could be, you know, I don't know, the, change makes people nervous, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> doesn't it? And uh, I think
4: that's very fair. But in general, I think diabetes makes people more nervous. So yes, if you're living with diabetes. You're willing to embrace a lot of change in order to get the outcomes that you're searching for. Right. So. I mean, in terms of what the patient communities are doing, there's a lot of talk about frustrations with the healthcare system. And there's a lot of talk about the conversations that aren't happening and the conversations that need to happen. And I think it's really important to highlight the fact that clinicians and patients, I mean, we're putting them in these, these word silos, but they fall under a broader category of, of humans. And we have this chance to rehumanize healthcare, to encourage people to make eye contact when they're in the office together. And I know that sounds like such a small, Minimal thing, but it can make a world of difference. Asking how someone feels about their lab result instead of just kind of shooting back at them what the lab result is. Encouraging conversations about putting someone's health condition into the context of their real life. Like this, that could really be careful and kind care, caring about one another. The people who are, you know, the clinicians in the office, the people who are patients in the office are all just people. And if we're able to kind of recognize that and realize that we're working towards the common goal of better health for everyone. I feel like a lot of this other stuff doesn't seem as daunting. It doesn't seem as intimidating, and it makes things like having difficult conversations less difficult. It gives people a chance to really kind of come into their own and say what they're thinking and meet in the middle. It's not as hard as everybody's making it sound
1: curious, Maggie's talking about barrier cards that are going to be put up, um, specifically looking at some of the clinician side of this conversation. Um, I'm not sure what role you've played in, in, in kind of creating them and how all that uh, information uh, was gathered up. Can you imagine some of the things that go through clinicians' heads or do you know uh, that act as barriers even for the goals that you want, uh, that you were saying that try to humanize this whole thing? What do you think is going on for clinicians?
4: I mean, I know personally with my endocrinologists, they have a tendency to be very late in their office. And when they're talking to me about how they just had to diagnose someone with a complication or they're working through someone's high risk pregnancy or they themselves had to deal with their kids falling off a desk at school. Like there's something about getting those smaller details that builds in a layer of forgiveness and again humanity to that interaction. It's really easy to sit there in the waiting room and get angrier and angrier about the fact that the system is not getting me and my clinician in the right space at the right time. But knowing what everybody is juggling makes it a lot easier. And again, I if I was a clinician, I'm not sure if I would want my patient population to have a lot of access to the personal details in my life. But even without clinician cards in place, if my clinician gave me the plan your conversation cards, it's almost like they are encouraging me to tell them what diabetes looks like in the context of my real life. Having them tell me that those cards exist, even if they don't have the deck of their own personally to share, opens up a whole new layer of conversation that could be really useful in managing a patient's care.
1: I like the idea that somehow, uh, you know, this goes back to kind of patients in the lead uh, sort of offering almost, uh, you know, physicians, nurses, and others um, opportunity to be uh, as open and honest uh, in, in ways that feel okay uh, as, as patients are, sort of giving uh, some room for that. Uh, quick, uh, i going to turn over to Rebecca for uh, just a minute, and then we'll get to some kind of wrap-up here. Oh, all right. There is no script, but you can see it says Upcoming Program. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Rebecca and I are working together for the first time, and I think we're doing great. Patient Safety Executive Development Program is coming up in March 2018. 2018 is around the corner. Uh, it's uh, among many things uh, coming your way from uh, IHI, uh in the coming year and as we round out 2017, all that information uh, is available on our website so we encourage you uh, to, to take a look at that. Um, all right. Well, we do need to, I, we, we, we cannot solve this today, but we're on some kind of <laughs> uh, a road together, it seems. And I, again, want to thank the audience for all your really thoughtful comments and suggestions uh, let, me, let me start with uh, Maggie. Uh, you mentioned clinician cards. And uh, anything else you want to point to that folks should be on the lookout for uh, as uh, you continue to build uh, patient revolution? Go ahead.
3: Um, there certainly will be more tools um, available on our website, so I encourage people to sign up for our newsletter. Uh, once a month, we kind of update people on what it is that we're doing, and um, that's a great way to to kind of stay in touch. I'll also just say, building a little bit on, on what Carrie was kind of pointing out, um, our faith in uh, the the revolution um, comes in large part because while well, we know there's all these reasons that it uh, won't work, that there's not enough time, um, and that the, the system is too big or, or um, it's it's too hard for us to actually change it, uh, the piece that we always come back to is that when uh, patients do find a way to kind of share something that's important about their lives or clinicians create space for that to be revealed in conversation with, with patients, um, it leads to... A connection between those two people that is so powerful um, and so uh, exciting um, that it rejuvenates the faith in what healthcare can be, and so um, I think that's that if we encourage people to find ways to connect with each other, um, that's really what. Uh, 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 keeps us faithful about the idea that we can actually change a system that can seem uh, too big and too hard to change.
1: Okay. Thanks, Maggie, Uh, so much for your time and preparation and for being part of our conversation today. We hope to stay in touch and uh, see what comes uh, next. And I I think you're going to get a lot of uh, inquiries. Um, All right, Victor, Uh, Maggie is more hopeful. (laughs) What what do you have to say?
5: Well, first, uh, thank everyone that has come to the uh, session today and uh, thank you, Match, for the opportunity to uh, bring our message out. I think that we are in a unique situation right now where uh, we can, we can make sure that healthcare is available to our um, to our kids and to our kids' kids um, in a way that is not available to our patients today, uh, that is in a careful and kind way. I invite people to pick up the book, uh, Why We Revolt. look at the language that's there, look at the ideas that are there, see how they re- that reflects their situation, what they're struggling with, and then connect with us in patient re- at patientrevolution.org to, uh, to see if they can create the kinds of conversations that can transform industrial healthcare into uh, patient care. Uh, I think we're all in that uh, in that together, and I hope that we can be uh, ultimately successful. Thank well, you very much.
1: Yes, uh, thank you, Victor, so much. Uh, so uh, important uh, the ways in which uh, you folks are creating some space for this conversation and pushing uh, hard on uh, what's going on uh, in the country right now. All right, so Carrie gets the last word. Um, you can say anything. <laughs> that's never safe. All right. you, you can say uh, anything uh, in terms sure. of uh, what, what's what's around the bend for you. Go ahead.
4: Well I, I mean it's called a patient revolution and I haven't I haven't found a revolution that's been easy. But it's worth it. And I feel like if enough people are willing to take the step and have those conversations and meet one another in the middle, that it absolutely can be done. So I'll join Maggie completely and Victor's there too in the, in the hope pile. We're all piled in there with all the hope that this can be done, but it's not a one organization effort or a one person effort or a one community effort. This is something that we have to work as a team at and it will be arduous, but it's absolutely worth it. So I'm looking forward to everybody kind of signing on and and being ready to fight this fight.
1: Okay. Thanks so much, Carrie and Victor, and Maggie, uh, and uh, we will be continuing this conversation in various ways, and we'll stay in touch about uh, this new initiative. Next up on WIHI will be a special edition WIHI podcast based on the remarks of Steve Spear on operations excellence, and he'll be delivering a keynote address at IHI's National Forum uh, next Monday, and then we'll come back uh, to uh, Cambridge, Mass., and we'll put that together uh, as a podcast uh, before the holidays. So look out for that. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use from our discussion today. We would very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey uh, that pops up. Uh, We want to know what worked for you today and what we can do to make it better. And again, the archive pages for this program will be going live uh, tomorrow and you can find the podcast on iTunes. And uh, think about subscribing under the Institute for Healthcare Improvement to that because then uh, every one of these shows will come your way. And if you're interested in the subject, you can listen and you can write a review if you feel like it. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. And there's a great group who make WIHI possible. They include John Guthier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case. Val Weber and Kiki Yee, and a big thank you to Rebecca Goldberg for being our WebEx administrator today. Big smile on her face. (laughs) It's my privilege to host a program that's about this kind of spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for being such a great panel, a great audience. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.